It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Faz Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we're talking to Alyssa Rosenberg, a columnist for The Washington Post who focuses primarily on the intersection of culture and politics. And I should add that Alyssa is a friend of mine. I hired her roughly, I think, a decade ago (laughs) to cover culture for Think Progress, a defunct blog of the Center for American Progress that I used to edit. But first, uh, Amanda, what's been on your mind this week? So, Faz, I have been thinking nonstop about a story that NBC News ran last week in which they dug into the network of state and local based groups that are pushing the fight against critical race theory in school boards. And what NBC News found is that there are more than 135 groups from this network called No Left Turn that are basically astroturfing protests. They are running recall campaigns against school board members. They are trying to conflate Critical race theory, which is a legal concept around the intersection of race and the law and policies with teaching an honest reckoning of racism in American history. I think this is so important to notice. And I've been thinking about this NBC News story all week because much like the voter suppression, none of this shit is an accident. It is paid for and funded by Republican mega donors in order to cultivate a culture war, especially in this case on the local level and around education, because they understand intimately that when you get into local fights about people's kids, it becomes personal. And when you make it about something that feels like a cultural grievance, it can last beyond any particular figure, which is leaving me very frustrated and angry. We all know about the the elements of racism that drive mm-hmm. this debate, and we see it play out in all various forms. In fact, there was a nominee for the Office of Personnel Management by President Biden named Kieran Ahuja, and she got only 50 votes in the Senate. All 50 Republicans voted against her. And what was her crime? Well, she talked about the fact that we have a systemically racist system against black and indigenous people. And for that, Josh Hawley went to the floor and said, oh, this woman sponsors and believes in critical race theory and we need to stop her. But I think what you're suggesting is not just the element of racism that was overriding this debate, that there is a strategic objective here, that they use critical race theory to get into some of these local school boards because they have an ideological agenda. And there is no better way, more cynical way, but better way to engage some of these suburban women who they left behind or they lost over the last four years of Trump than to make it about what your kids are learning in schools. And you might not like the modern day Republican Party, you might not like what Trump is, but you all have strong opinions about what your kids are learning in schools. And by painting it in this broad strokes of 
un-American education, even though racism is the most American ideology there is, is a very savvy and very cynical political strategy on behalf of the Republican Party and is further cemented by the fact that it's really hard for Democrats to engage in school board elections because we have a very complicated position on education between charter schools and not, which makes it really hard to do this work at scale in any meaningful way. So you have on one side a Republican Party that is using the nature of white grievance and their national ecosystem and national infrastructure to engage on these local elections to get voters excited, even when there's no longer Trump on the ballot, and a Democratic Party that doesn't have the tools to fight back because we can't get our shit together on this front either. So it's really uh, infuriating. (laughs) One thing that's on my mind is an offshoot of that. The more obvious example this week of the overhang of racism in the Senate Republican ranks, the war on people of color, which was, of course, the vote on the voting rights legislation. Yeah. And it fell the way we expected it to, which is essentially a partisan gridlock 50-50 vote. And now the debate is whether there will be a change in the filibuster rules to allow democracy to work. And one of the things that you know bothers me, and it continues to be a quote offered by both Senator Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and they say that we need to preserve the filibuster in order to preserve democracy. And it pains me because you have literally the two examples just in this session. You know, I'm not asking you to have long-term memory. <laughs> Let's just go in the last three weeks. How about that? Can we remember the Republicans have used it twice and they have both been used against democracy? What was the first one? Well, it was a, an investigation into the terrorist attacks on January 6th. And that was filibustered by Republicans. So they did not want an investigation into democracy and the attack on democracy. Then the second one, of course, is an effort to ensure that everyone has equal access to the ballot. Again, filibustered by Republicans. So it pains me that the one argument that they hold on to is that we got to maintain the filibuster so that we can preserve our democracy. What, What are you talking about? What example do you have of that actually occurring? The Republicans didn't just filibuster the bill. They filibustered debate on the bill. They refused to even have an open conversation. If you're Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, how do you integrate this reality into your your vision of what the Senate is supposed to do. It's supposed to be the greatest deliberative body. You literally have to choose not to. You have to say, I really don't want to hear about my friends in the Republican Party and the cult that they have become and the ideology that they espouse. I will not hear it. Instead, I will subscribe to really a mythology at this point. And it pains me that we are not in a place of any rational dialogue with these two senators and probably a few others in the Senate Democratic ranks. And that's got to change if we're going to have a functioning democracy. And all but a handful of the voter suppression laws that have passed on the state legislative level have passed unilaterally by Republicans. It's a Republican Party strategy to make it harder for mostly Democratic voters to show up at the polls. They are changing who does the vote counting. They are removing Democrats and especially people of color and Democrats of color from these state and local election boards and county certification positions. They are rigging these elections. And I don't use that term lightly. I think it's really important not to undermine trust in these democratic processes. But these are very quickly no longer becoming democratic processes. So if the Senate's not going to act, and Faz, you know better than anyone what's going on amongst a lot of these democratic senators' minds, we got to find another path. 
Yeah, we got to figure out some. If the most kind of nuclear filibuster reform, one that just changes it to 50 vote thresholds, isn't on the table, we got to figure out something else. You're talking filibuster, reducing the threshold over time, 41 minority vote threshold, whatever it might be. We got to put some options on the table that Joe Manchin and Cinema can finally agree to that will allow us to move forward. But we'll be on this one because it's too big, too much at play for our democracy to ignore this one. Yeah. All right, Amanda, enough talking amongst ourselves. Let's bring on Alyssa. But before we do it, let's set up the conversation a little bit. So we started by asking her thoughts on, quote, unquote, cancel culture, which led to a discussion about the role of persuasion and how to engage with people online when you fundamentally disagree with them. Yeah, we got into a conversation around this performative nature, some call it virtue signaling (laughs) of online discourse the need to kind of project a certain identity online. It sometimes leads to contradictory and complicated issues of whether to respond to online provocations. As many of you know, sometimes it's a lose-lose proposition. Uh, but we discussed that. And ultimately, I think you know we want to have this conversation in the context of how you craft a political message that is persuasive, that is universal, and that can move people. It led us to what I think is honestly a very good analysis, if I say so myself, of the trap that progressives often get drawn into when some of our most important messaging is being driven by the complicated social media incentives that encourage zero nuance. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think parts of our analysis might surprise some of our listeners, so I'm excited to play this conversation. Let's do it. Alyssa Rosenberg, opinion writer at The Washington Post, a former colleague of mine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. So Alyssa, one of the main topics Amanda and I had on our minds was this issue of cancel culture. You have been writing a fair amount about it at The Washington Post. How should we think about is cancel culture real and what the hell does it even mean? I mean, I think it depends on how you define it, right? I mean, are there situations where people try to exact serious consequences from other people for speech they don't like. That's absolutely a thing that happens in the world. You have the board at the University of North Carolina trying to deny Nicole Hannah-Jones a faculty appointment. You have, I mean, the New York Times is constantly running stories about a cheerleader who said something idiotic and racist on Snapchat or TikTok four years before she applies to college that a classmate holds on to and then sort of detonates as a form of revenge. You have people like Gina Carano getting fired for saying thoughtless, like maybe borderline transphobic and anti-Semitic stuff and losing her supporting role in The Mandalorian. So do people get fired for what they say sometimes? Yeah, that is a thing that happens. Whether it is a sort of quantifiable mass movement is, I think, a harder thing to determine. Whether it's something that only people of one political persuasion do to people of another political persuasion, like that's obviously not true. And I think the thing that I find really infuriating about, and I'm going to say this in air quotes because (laughs) listeners can't see me do this otherwise, air quotes cancel culture, is that there are actual remedies that people could argue for if they felt like it was a bad thing for people to get fired for having said something stupid on social media or having their college admissions acceptance rescinded for something that they said a quarter of their lifetime ago. You could build a left-right coalition for much stronger worker protections. 
there are strong unions in Hollywood who could argue against the kind of nebulously worded sort of morality clauses that the studios use to terminate people over speech. We could have a collective moral discussion, not just about one-off incidences of speech, but whether there should be a statute of limitations, what a substantive apology looks like. And instead, we're not having either the let's define the whole spectrum of public opinion conversation or the how do we dole out collective judgment, collective forgiveness. You know, what should the punishments be in addition to what are the offenses? I hate the term cancel culture. No one ever gets canceled. People always come back. They're always zombies. But (laughs) regardless, the left is trying to hold people accountable for speech that tends to be offensive or racist or problematic in some way and usually is exclusionary. The right tends to cancel, quote unquote, people or speech that they deem as dangerous, which is exclusionary in a different way. And I think it's actually a very different way of understanding the limits and boundaries and even impact of speech. But it also makes it very hard for either side to claim the sort of moral high ground here, even though I think we are morally right. It is very hard to have a debate about this when all parties are trying to in some way regulate what other people and how other people are talking. I mean, I see the distinction that you're saying, but I also think that there's a difference between saying this kind of speech that's actually good and this group is targeting this kind of speech that's actually bad or this group is acting out of pure motivations, this one is not. I think the debate that is more interesting and useful is what are the costs and benefits to a society of having a system where employers can fire employees for all kinds of speech that they may utter outside the workplace? One of the things that we're seeing right now in sort of Republican-dominated state legislatures is bills that effectively criminalize protesting Mm -hmm. that make it easier, for example, to hit people with your car if you can say sort of tangentially that you perceive them to be a threat while they were protesting. And my concern in part, because I think the right is a lot better at weaponizing outrage than the left is, is that if folks on the left set a standard that you can be fired for saying even ugly, cruel, stupid things outside of the workplace, that that standard will be applied to much more mild expressions of politics on the left. You know, I think it's not just the standard that you said in terms of whether the speech is good or bad, but what are the sentencing guidelines? How can they be weaponized against you? Well, it's one of the reasons I, I myself am a strong supporter of speech. One, you start with the sense that a lot of people coming from minority backgrounds know and understand and appreciate it as our speech that has often been the target of repercussions. In fact, if you look at some of the you know BDS bills, for instance, they are you know, targeting certain kinds of speech, like stop talking about this. But I also feel strongly as a progressive interested in politics and engaged in politics that what we're at work to do is to persuade people. And I think it kind of gets forgotten that the value of speech is to allow people to agree, to disagree, and then to have some degree of persuasion of the other to try to drive them towards your position. And what has happened, I think, largely in an Internet age in which the downtail effects of this, of the tribalization that occurs at the top of the political pyramid, it goes all the way down through the bottom. So a school teacher in some place has now gotten caught up on whether you're a Trumpite or not a Trumpite in a way that maybe would have been possible for that soccer coach or whatever to avoid 20 years ago now is very much wrapped in 
into, did you agree with Trump's comment about hydrochloroxyquin or whatever, you know, crazy thing he might have said? And now it affects all of us and has tribalized, I think, in a way with interconnection in a way that you're essentially, to your point, trying to drive distance between where you are and where somebody who you disagree with is rather than close distance. Yeah. And I think that there is a tension between trying to punish and trying to persuade, right? Trying to punish can be extremely satisfying in the moment, but it's worth evaluating what you get out of that, right? I mean, I think Gina Carano had a tendency to act like an idiot on social media, but I don't know that she treated anyone she worked with badly, that she would have violated Disney's non-discrimination politics if she was working with someone trans on set or an outspoken liberal. And she's going to go off and make movies with Ben Shapiro, I guess. And I don't know what the movements against anti-Semitism or against transphobia in the United States get out of that. Like, what is the material gain? And I come from an organizing-oriented background, and I think that informs some of my sense that there is speech that is dangerous and genuinely inciting and that can cause real harm. But there is speech that is personally hurtful, that's ugly, without necessarily meeting that legal standard. And I think if you want to do the work of political persuasion, sometimes that requires setting aside or swallowing some of that hurt and trying to reach someone, seeing if they're operating out of ignorance or actual malice. You know, I would rather end up with a lot of people persuaded than, you know, a bunch of service workers or school teachers fired and really angry and converted into very effective Fox News guests. Right, because it forces you to buckle back down. So giving a chance to others to reform, have conversation, learn, and have another shot at this one in my mind, is better than saying, oh, one strike and you're out. You can't work here. You can't be associated with us. You can't be part of our group or club or whatever it might be. Yeah. And I mean, more than that, there's also an effective industry to turn people who have been, again, air quotes, canceled, unquote, into these sorts of symbols. There is a whole infrastructure that exists to stick people on speaker circuits and turn them into Senate candidates. And playing into that has its risks. And it also just, it seems to me to a certain extent, like an expression of despair. I mean, exiling someone from polite society kind of seems like it should be a last resort. And if you jump to that without trying to persuade, then that actually seems like a vote of no confidence in your own persuasive abilities or in your movement's persuasive abilities. Well, I think we run into a structural problem here, which is that the places where most of these conversations are happening, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, social media outlets, are not set up to incentivize persuasion. Yes. They're set up to incentivize the most outrageous, incendiary kind of behavior. So how do you get the retweets, get the likes? How do you get the retweets? Every day, Twitter has a main character, and it's the person everyone is dunking on. On Facebook, you say congratulations in the comments in order to give more engagement, or you, yeah. you do the little reactions. Yeah, they're the worst. It is not meant to be a persuasion tool. Yeah, they're absolutely terrible. And I mean, I have spent a lot of time thinking about what spending so much time and sort of giving so much weight to social media has done to my brain. Mm -hmm. And I was actually talking to our head of social media at the Washington Post opinion section a couple months ago, and he was just giving us the statistics on what percentage of Americans were active on each platform. And once you realize how low it is, 
and how inherently unrepresentative it is. I mean, people like to talk about how Twitter isn't the real world in a sort of surface way, but it's really not the real world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a healthy thing to have people in your life who disagree with you like kindly and respectfully and who see you as a full person, even as sometimes they will be really hard on you. But there's a difference between that and outsourcing your opinion of yourself or your opinions in general to people you just can't know, especially in a context where you cannot have serious conversations of them because of the literal architecture of the platform on which they're talking. We'll be right back after a quick break. Welcome back to Battleground. We're talking with Alyssa Rosenberg of the Washington Post about cancel culture. And we just discussed how social media isn't set up to incentivize persuasion. When someone in the professional space has been, we keep saying, quote unquote, canceled, just assume from here on out, we're air quoting that word. Stipulated. (laughs) Stipulated. How does one redeem themselves? And are there certain things that are irredeemable? This is something that I've written about for years, including when I was working for FAS. You know, Brett Ratner, the director and producer, has been finally largely exiled from working in Hollywood for a while because of sexual misconduct. But there was a kerfuffle back when I was at Think Progress where, you know, he used some homophobic language in just a dumb, careless way. And he apologized and then donated a bunch of time to GLAAD to Hmm. shoot public service announcements. And I always thought that was sort of the perfect model, right? Like, glad get something material out of it, like the services of a high-priced, you know, very effective Hollywood director. He actually has to spend some time engaging and listening. It's like someone being sentenced to community service, but in a way that, like, gives something back materially to the community that he's wronged. But on the subject of engaging with people, I have for a long time tried to have a policy of responding to all reader email that is not downright unhinged. And I get some fairly unhinged reader email. But a lot of the time when someone's angry, there is so much surprise when I respond. And I think that a huge thing on social media in particular is people assume that they will go unheard and therefore what they say doesn't matter. So their speech is informed both by that sense of rage and isolation, but also a sense that it doesn't actually mean anything or doesn't get heard. And I have had great conversations with people who have initially been really mad at me on social media or email. I met my best friend and the matron of honor at my wedding (laughs) after she wrote some pretty harsh stuff about me on her (laughs) blog back in the day. My kid has a baby blanket knitted by someone who Initially, we met because she mischaracterized me on Twitter. And so, (laughs) you know, there's a difference between an argument with a fellow feminist or something and someone random who's especially who's like heard about you on Tucker Carlson. But people are reachable and persuadable. And I often get a certain amount of embarrassment from people who have been harsh, not assuming that anyone's listening. I have the same policy for people with constructive feedback about run for something or our mission or, you know, the way we do our work. And I try to respond to as many of them as possible. Most of them are just like, oh, my God, 
I can't believe you answered this email. Yep. And I think you articulate it very well. It's that need for connection and to think that what they're saying matters. Yeah. And someone is listening. Yeah. And it's a sign of respect. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you, you carve a lot of these things out as to what is driving people and it fundamentally some degree of a lack of feeling of worth. You can cut through that by just acknowledging, hey, I mm-hmm. respect your opinion. I'm going to share what my perspective might be. The problem, of course, you know, you get giant numbers of engagements yeah. <laughs> on random Twitter, you know, 300 people profiles. And you're like, OK, am I going to spend a lot of my time trying to engage this or Am I going to try to live my life and move forward and uh, be the person who I want to be and essentially live my values rather than stoop to kind of engaging with every little concern and criticism leveled against you? Yeah, and I think it's a lot easier to be alive as a person on the internet if you have a strong sense of self and priorities outside of the internet. Right. And I think turning social media into giving it a lot of power to judge, creating it as a substitute for human engagement, and all those things are really risky, which is one of the reasons the pandemic has been such a weird and dangerous time, right? Uh Like QAnon was dangerous before the pandemic, but when people are sitting at home and they're freaked out and their favorite wellness influencers, like actually guys, we need to save the children. Uh People are going down some weird rabbit holes when there are fewer opportunities for sort of meat space connection. And I think that's made our politics, our pop culture, like things are just really weird right now. I think what happens here is it's getting harder and harder to agree to disagree, particularly if you're not in that camp, (laughs) because it's hard to just leave it as is, right? If you hear something like the things that we've heard from QAnon or Trumpites who might spew complete false in a hurtful and harmful way, can you just leave it there? Should you just leave it there is really the question I want to ask, especially if you encounter that on a Facebook post and a friend from high school is now spouting a QAnon theory. You're trying to be the right person that says, hey, I want to have an agreement and I just want to share my point. How do you think that's going to be received when you try to make that point? And I don't know what the right answer is. I wonder what your thought is. How, how should you engage with the side that isn't going to agree to disagree? They just want the disagreement. Yeah, I think that the two things that I would say is first, just take things off social media. If you see something on social media that concerns you, I would never engage in the comments or the replies because you're engaging with that person's performance. If what they want is sort of to stage a public fight, then you're giving that to them. And you're also engaging in a performance of your own. And if you're truly worried not just about the harm that someone may be doing to others, but the harm they may be doing to themselves, you need to sort of reset that expectation. I would take it to email. I would take it to text. I know actually calling people on the phone is not super fashionable anymore, but call them on the phone. And if you think that they have adopted extreme ideas in part because their real world self is not nourished, like I wouldn't necessarily email someone and be like, that thing you said is crazy. I'd be like, hey, we haven't connected in a while. How's your spouse? How's your kids? How are you dealing with this insane, weird time? And express concern for their person and work your way around the idea. Try to address the deeper need. Let me push on you a little bit there, Alyssa, because to use your metaphor, you're on a stage. So this stage has now been inhabited by an individual who says all Muslims should be banned, Mexicans are rapists, and a number of other harmful, hateful things. It's all coming, right? Your point is, let me jump off and try to do a one-on-one conversation with you. Others would say, hey, this person has taken the stage. You got to jump on that stage too. Good. Jump on there and you got to tell them your point of view, because otherwise there's all these people watching the stage and they need to see what is the other side to this argument. Yeah. And I think under those circumstances, like calibrating their performance is really important. 
if you want to be an effective debater, you have to think about what is effective in even messaging that you think is really ugly. It's not always fun to say like, what what appeals to people about the idea that the Democratic Party is run by a bunch of satanic children eating pedophiles? I don't have any sympathy for that nonsense, but I can see how it would be appealing to people to be part of a grand narrative, right, or an existential struggle that people who are having a hard time in the middle of like a totally disrupted environment would look for a way that they can make a meaningful contribution, even if I think both the cause that they think they've enlisted themselves in and the tactics they've chosen are crazy nonsense. What is the most effective way to respond to those needs? And then what's the most effective way to undercut that messaging for people who are sympathetic to it, right? Like, you know, there are times when it's like worth getting into it and having a disagreement in the comments. The easiest thing to do is to flame away. The most effective thing to do may not be that. So if you're going to take the stage, do it deliberately. Do it not necessarily out of pure impulse and reaction, but do it a little coldly and calculatingly. What do you think is going to work? Why are people listening to this? Why are people saying this? And how can you attack the root causes? We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Alyssa Rosenberg. We're back with Alyssa Rosenberg. Before the break, we were talking about how to calibrate your response if you do choose to engage with your detractors online. I think what this gets at a larger question, concept, theory of is the sense of identity and community as tied into political partisanship. You know, we were talking about this online herd or mob or cancellation in terms of protecting who you are as a human, as a partisan or what have you. But I think there is like a deeper sense of connection that people are seeking when they engage in conversation online overlaid with the reality that some of the most interesting research I've ever read, and I think about it constantly since I heard it probably three years ago at this point, was that your partisanship directly informs the facts that you remember. Mm -hmm. You know, Democrats were more likely to remember George W. Bush being on vacation during Katrina. Republicans were more likely to remember Barack Obama shaking hands with the president of Iran. Neither of those facts are actually true, but it doesn't really matter. Similarly, when you showed Republicans photos of like the Trump inauguration versus the Obama inauguration, they would obviously, in this sense, see that the Trump inauguration was much bigger, even if that wasn't on the facts on the ground, because it is really hard to integrate something that would go against your core sense of who you are as a person, which makes having these conversations online and trying to integrate a reality that contradicts how you understand yourself so difficult, so, so difficult. So to your point, Alyssa, of having to calculate how you approach that, it requires stepping outside of how you understand facts, putting yourself into someone else's shoes to understand the lens through which they view the world, and then trying to navigate that kind of reality or that lens, it's exhausting. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and it's not always emotionally satisfying. Oh, it sucks. Right. There is sort of this like online trope of conversation. It's like you shouldn't ask people to do emotional labor or you should educate yourself. To a certain extent, I get that. If someone in your timeline has is saying that like all Muslims should be banned from the U.S., why should you have to go out there and justify <laughs> your presence in the United States and your individual contributions? I think every person is going to have to decide what level of engagement is productive and useful for them. I mean, I would be really interested to see a left-leaning effort to train online organizers in a old-school Alinsky style. Like, 
Rules for Radicals is just a really effective and interesting book to read. And if you had people who were trained at what's actually effective in some of these online conversations and could step up and do some of that work, it would take pressure off people who are legitimately exhausted. The burdens of these conversations are distributed unevenly. But on the left, we are ultimately going to have to make some choices. If you think it is important for conversations about racism to be vigorously combated, it can't both be the case that only people of color can respond to those conversations Mm -hmm. and that those kinds of conversations are emotional labor that it's unfair to put on the most marginalized people. And I think sussing out some of those contradictions is a useful strategic thing. But again, it goes beyond the snappy conversations that are all that are structurally possible to have on social media. You get at one of my biggest irritations with a lot of progressive movement spaces right now, which is that you always have to enter with your story of self and expose your trauma in order to gain validation to be in the room. And it's like, that doesn't really set us up into be a, in a healthy place for organizing, I think. And it often puts people in a position of having to bear their trauma or experience trauma in order to feel like they can be part of the solution when the reality is where we want as many people as possible, whether or not they've personally undergone injustice to care about injustice. And it makes it really complicated of who gets to participate in solving these problems, who gets to call someone else out, how to do so in a way that doesn't further weaponize it. This is so messy and there isn't an easy solution. Yeah. The most powerful political appeals are universalism, Mm -hmm. that we are all in this together. You have some degree of an experience that while I don't have directly, I have some experience that you may not have directly, but we are all in this lot. And that is why we need to hear each other, work together to empathize and understand one another and engage in solidarity. But when we're engaging in this cancelingness, you're actually siloing off Mm what would otherwise be universality. You know, you're different. Your experience is very different. Now I'm going to identify that as some other slice. And it actually doesn't foster the kinds of solidarity that you need politically. And if we don't give people a chance for redemption and for change, then what's the point of the persuasion and the advocacy that we're all doing? Right. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot of short-term thinking. In the space that I cover most directly, which is pop culture, there are tensions between the tendency to get culture to serve a kind of pre-existing political agenda and the actual interesting political work that culture can do, which is to say things that don't necessarily have a neat home in current political dichotomies. Um, You know, there are a lot of debates about representation and specificity. There's a conversation going on now about whether there should have been more Afro-Latino representation in In the Heights. But I actually think that case for specificity sort of extends across the aisle politically. Like conservatives aren't wrong to complain that outspoken conservative characters basically don't exist in mainstream pop culture. There are conservative ideas deeply embedded in a lot of pop culture, including in the veneration of the police, the sort of fetish for kind of vision of liberal interventionism abroad. But there are not conservative characters per se. I, mean, I don't know if either of you have watched Mythic Quest on Apple TV Plus. Yes. Yep. But it's one of the only shows I have 
ever seen that has a outspoken like Trumpy Republican character who's this very funny conniving assistant at this video game company. A woman, actually. Yeah, a woman. And, you know, the show treats her like she's ridiculous some of the time, but it treats all the characters like it's ridiculous some of the time. And it's actually really funny to see the tension play out between her and another character who is basically like a Twitter feed come to life. And that variety in politics makes the show better and more interesting. Like finding a way to fuse both universalism and specificity is certainly to me where culture gets very interesting. And I think that finding common ground without asking people to erase their specificities is in a lot of ways the challenges of politics. You can't necessarily ask people to sand off all of their differences and rough edges before the work begins, because the work has to happen. It's a great note to end on. And I, you know, I used to go around and talk about free speech at the ACLU, and we'd, I'd always share this proverb from the Quran. And I did, I'm not religious by any means, and I don't know many uh, proverbs of the Quran, but there was one that I always remembered and shared with the audience, which was, we made you into nations and tribes so that you may better know one another. And the reason I loved it so much is because it highlighted that we didn't create, imagine that a million phases talking to another million phases, how boring as hell life would be. It is that there are differences between us that animate life. I mean, you think about when you go home every night or you talk to your spouse, what are you talking to them about? Oh, this thing made me laugh. This thing made me cry. This thing made me angry. It's the differences that animate life and to treasure and appreciate those differences rather than condemn them. Uh, Alyssa Rosenberg. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, guys. This was so much fun. Thank you again so much to Alyssa Rosenberg for joining us today. I hope you agree that it was a great, albeit a little winding, conversation. As a reminder, we would love to hear from you. You can leave us a message at 929-399-6748 or email us at battleground at therecount.com. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer, and Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 